Welcome to the OKC First Church of the Nazarene podcast. At OKC First, we are learning to do three things. Friendship with God, friendship with one another, and open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Before I sit down, I want, I want to do a, a little bit of a scene setting for you. She was standing right about here with a microphone and a stand. This is where Stephanie was going to stand to read the scripture at our wedding. June 4th, 1992. Yeah, I know, Kelly and I got married at nine years old. It was an incredible thing. (laughs) And she was asked to read a passage of scripture that we will hear a lot, right? We will still hear a lot. And I think it's a great thing, this, this passage of scripture, 1 Corinthians 13. Raise your hand if you've ever heard this passage of scripture read at a wedding. Yeah, most everybody has. And while that's really good, while it's really good, I I think there's also a problem that that this passage of scripture is then understood to be about romantic love, which is actually not the case. But we hear it read in that environment and in that ethos, in that situation so often that uh, we think it is just about romantic love, and, and so we kinda, it's kind of held hostage. 1 Corinthians 13 is largely decoration at the wedding chapel and not a whole lot more. When Paul wrote it, Paul wrote it to be upsetting. Upsetting at least to the particular church there in Corinth that he was writing to. He wrote it to upset the apple cart, to challenge them, to reorganize, to reorganize. He was saying to them right out loud, you're not doing it right. You're not doing this church thing right. In fact, you're doing it so poorly that you are pushing and pulling in the wrong direction. What direction is that? Back to Stephanie. Um, Now, when we were uh, getting married, we too had this particular passage of scripture, and she, Stephanie um, did not have a Bible, um, and, and maybe still doesn't have a Bible. We need to make sure that she has a Bible somehow, and so what we had, she was walking around, wasn't sure how to pronounce some of the words, right? And so she was walking around, kind of stomping around saying, who knows the Bible? Who knows the Bible? What she had to read was something that looks a little bit like this, right? It's not exactly this one, right? Because I'll tell you how it's a little bit different. But she had something like that to read over here. And it was the words of 1 Corinthians 13 that in the sort of fashioned into the shape of a heart. But because it was fashioned in the shape of the heart, it kind of did this at the end. And the greatest of these is love, period. First, next line, Corinthians 13, whatever, right? Unaware of what this passage of scripture is trying to say, unaware of scripture in general, here's what she said, here's what she did. And the greatest of these is love first. Corinthians 13, she she just didn't understand. I mean, doesn't it bother you? Doesn't it bother you at least a little bit when folks who are uh, perhaps not biblically literate still want to use the Bible to make certain points? Does that bother anybody else? Do you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians? Actually, in order to give us some idea of what's going on in this pastor's scripture, we kind of have to go somewhere else. 
In order to give us some idea of what it is that Paul is trying to do in 1 Corinthians 13 and to understand why it would have been upsetting to that particular bunch of people and why it might need to be upsetting to us at some level so that we can reapprehend it or better said be reapprehended by it, we got to go somewhere else. To the book you know is one of my favorites. Yep, go ahead and turn all the way back to the book of Revelation. Now again, Um, Revelation 21, if you are going to go all the way there. Again, remember this. What we read in the book of Revelation is not that God scoops up the good people and leaves everybody else to be somehow blitzkrieged in fire. What we read in the book of Revelation is what we read elsewhere in Scripture, that God is going to finish what God started. Oh, man, I like that you said amen there. I really do. That God is going to finish what God started. That eventually all of creation would be in the embodiment of the heartbeat and the character and the nature of God. In other words, love is going to be everywhere. It will operate everything. It will be the way that we move around. It will be the way that we make decisions. It will be the way that we measure success and failure. Love will be the operating system because it is God. It is this God. Now, interesting, the language that is used in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. There is something here that should be experienced as something like a wedding ceremony. Something like that. There is now going to be this huge celebration and this giant sweeping covenant that will be enjoyed and explored between God and the people of God. God is coming here to take up permanent residence to make this his home. It's another good place for an amen, but we'll keep going. Verse four, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, see, I am making all things new. Oh, Recovering, redeeming, restoring all of creation. Recovering, redeeming, restoring all mankind and all of creation so that God finally is able to finish what God has started. Now here's the best part. All of that has already started. All of that has already started in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have you heard of him? In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, eternity comes crashing into the present. And all of that is started and kicked off in the resurrection of the Son of God. Who, by his resurrection, demonstrates a power greater than power itself. You know, he said all these things while he was alive about love and the priority of love and the power of love. And then the other powers colluded and organized against him to say, well, we'll see who's most powerful. And they kill him dead. They killed him dead. 
And then God raised him from the dead. <laughs> and this Jesus walked around saying, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, listen to me. Now you should know for sure. See the wounds? Love is more powerful than power itself. The new kingdom comes crashing into the presence and just gets amplified by the Spirit. All right, now hear this. And the church is called to be the tangible, touchable expression of the ultimate dream of God here in the present, right here. Man. So the sermon series is called Fear and Desire. Fear today because, wow, if that's what we're called to be, sometimes we don't get all the way there. Sometimes we as a church and we as a church with a capital C, all of us out there, sometimes we don't, we don't get all the way there. If, in fact, we are to be the first taste of the heavenly banquet, where God finally resides in, in completion with God's people, if we are to be the first taste here, sometimes it doesn't taste all that good. Well, it tasted... <laughs> It, was the, it tasted terrible at Corinth. Terrible. At, at Corinth, though that was their calling too, like it is ours, to be the first fruits, the first taste, the first expression of God's eternity, though it was supposed to be their calling too, they were really doing a lousy job of it. Now they heard this language of the Spirit enabling and giving people the capacity to speak in these other languages. Let's call them spiritual gifts. And they got pretty excited about it. They'd heard about gifts somewhere else around in the city. Other faith systems, other theologies also explored gifts. And, and they were able to do incredible things like prophesy, speak in tongues, have hidden knowledge of some kind. But the Corinthians, rather than being the place where this particular kind of love is rehearsed and practiced so that we can be the first taste of God's eternity, the Corinthians just allowed the outside culture to tell them what Christianity was supposed to look like. Have you ever heard of that one? Sometimes churches canonize what the outside culture wants to call success. That's bad. Does everybody know that's bad? That's bad. In Corinth, it was really bad. It was so bad that they were even able to somehow observe the Lord's Supper, but to do so so poorly that it actually pulled the opposite direction. Rather than there being a meal where everyone had equal access and everyone is included and everyone is invited, the Corinthians did communion such that the wealthiest got there first and ate it all. And other folks who came a little bit later, perhaps hungry, were left out. And so Paul was pulling out what was remaining of his hair, saying, no, you are not getting this thing. You're supposed to be a first taste of this banquet. You're supposed to be a first taste of all it is that God dreams for us to be, and you are getting it wrong. And the worst part is you're getting it wrong and you're calling yourself the church. Paul might have said to them, what is up with your definition of love? I tell you what, if you'll let me, Paul says, I will show you a more excellent way. A more excellent way of being alive and being the church. But in order to do so, he's going to have to take aim at their faulty, ugly, bad theology. And so he does here. Okay, you guys are pretty excited about speaking in tongues, he was saying. 
You're pretty excited about prophetic powers. You're pretty excited about knowing these hidden mysteries and all this knowledge. But let me tell you something. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but I do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Have you ever been in a household where someone was trying to learn to play the drums? You know exactly what's being said here. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, which is pretty cool, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And you see, this is the point at which not only should we understand why it is that this would have been upsetting to the Corinthian church, but maybe there are folks now in the room who now are upset. How dare Paul say that folks who can do such things, enabled as we believe by the Spirit, how dare Paul say that we amount to nothing? But that's what he's saying to them and to us. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Okay. If in fact we are to be the first taste of God's eternity, where love is the operating system and the essence of all that is, the love of God, if we are not then loving people and we prioritize anything over that love, we aren't who God wants us to be as the church. So, Christian, church-going Christian, I have great evidence that you're a church-going Christian today. Have you, have I, have we prioritized anything over love? Have we given ourselves to any endeavor, any initiative? Have we given ourselves to any kind of posture or attitude or opinion over this all-out commitment to love? If the answer is yes, we have some repenting and some repairing to do. In a wedding ceremony, we read this passage of scripture, and hear me again, it is a beautiful passage of scripture. <laughs> if it's not fully understood, I'm not sure it fits a wedding ceremony. Now, maybe by the time we get to the end of this, and if you still like this passage of scripture, maybe then at the end, it can come back to your wedding. But right now, if, if we understand this passage of scripture correctly, this is, this is tough stuff. I think sometimes we, we read this passage at a, at, a, at a ceremony like this because it fits. It's kind of where we always hear this. And, and we, we, we want what's being said in the ceremony itself. We want these descriptions of love to be true in the household. We like the feeling. We need to be concerned more about the motion and the activity of love than the residual feelings 
Here's what I mean. Paul is now saying, okay, um, here are all the things that you aren't. And if we were an outbreak of the kingdom, a first taste of, a thor- of a eternity, here is what would be true of us as we deal with one another, the church, as we deal with one another, we would see patience. And by the way, it says here, love is patient, okay? It actually should probably say something um, like this, something more active than this. Love shows patience. Love acts kindly. Love is a moving, moving, dynamic sort of entity. (laughs) Love does all of these things. Love shows patience. Love acts kindly. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. What? But I have deep and theological reasons to believe what I believe. I've always thought that's one of my least favorite sentences in the world. Maybe because I remember when that was sort of my go-to expression. I've always thought that, fill in the blank. And all too many times, if I'm honest, as I think back to who I was as a believer, whatever I would put after that, I've always thought that whatever I'd put there to fill in that blank was less than loving. It was more about me being right. Oh, wow. Am I the only one in the room that likes being right? And how many times do Christians, how many times do believers, how many times do pastors, full disclosure, prioritize being right over being loving? When we insist on being right as opposed to being loving, we are, even if we are right, we're wrong. So Corinthian church, Y'all are insisting that you have the inside scoop, that you know what the rights and the wrongs are, and you're willing to roll that stuff up and use it as a weapon against other people who don't believe like you, who don't think like you, who don't agree with you. If you are insisting on your own way, it's not the outbreak of the kingdom that God hopes that we will be. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. This kind of love that is a first taste of eternity bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Because when finally God completes what God has started, It will all be like this. I could ask you what turns and shapes the world, what organizes the world, and we might have a hundred different answers in here, and and probably, depending on where you find yourself, they may all be right. There will come a time. There will come a time when love will organize and orient everything. Everything. And not love the way that the Corinthians defined it outside that church. And perhaps not even love the way that you all might define it or I might define it outside of this church. But love the way God defines it. 
Love the way God defines it, and God best defines the love that will someday orient and organize and prioritize all of creation. By the way, you still believe that, right? We're a few minutes into the sermon. Do you still believe that? All right, just making sure I'm not alone. (laughs) But God best embodies and defines and describes that love on that cross. Something else, if you're new to our church, you will hear this a lot, especially over the next several weeks and months as we move into the Lenten season and then the Easter season after that. The cross is not understood, first and foremost, as a symbol of judgment. It is understood almost exclusively as a symbol of love. This does not tell us how angry God gets when we misbehave. It tells us how far love will go to make love's point. And that kind of love is supposed to be embodied by the people of God, spread from there to this place so that we can, in fact, be a first taste of God's eternity, this side of the resurrection. Love never ends. He's saying, look, there is this kingdom coming And you're a part of it right now. You're not acting like it. You may not even know it. But you're a part of this kingdom coming. And love will be the thing that somehow is able to last all the way into the eternity of God's future. Love, perhaps nothing else. Love will last. Prophecies, they will come to an end. Tongues, they will cease. Knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part, but when the complete comes... The partial will come to an end. I love this. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. Oh, it's very, very important. Verb structure there. Because so far, what I've said to you may feel like this huge, awful, unreachable burden. Because maybe you are just human and honest enough to say, man, I fall short of this, and not just in my marriage, but also when I come to church. I fall short of this. And and so if this is the standard by which we will be graded, I hope there's a curve in there somewhere. If this is the standard and anything short of that is not acceptable, then I'm going to regularly fall into the not acceptable part. How can we be these people? Look at this verse and then a quote and we'll be done. Well, right now we have faith because we don't have sight. And we have hope because we don't have all the evidence that we need. And we have love. We do have, in this moment, the opportunity to practice the love that will exist all the way into God's future. We do have that. But we also, because we're in the not yet part of this kingdom, we also have faith and we have hope. Hear me. Someday we won't need the faith and we won't need the hope. And here's why. Because someday faith will be sight. 
Someday hope will be fully realized. So in that someday when we no longer really need the faith part and the hope part, here's what we will still have, the love part. In other words, we can participate now, now we can participate in that which will live forever into God's eternity. N.T. Wright says it like this, and I love it. Love is a river. Love is a river. An endless, eternal river that lasts all the way into God's eternity but reaches all the way to where we are now and you and I today get to drink. Yeah, you haven't helped me yet, John. I still feel like I can't quite do it. Well, of course you can't. (laughs) Unless or until. Your God-given capacity to love deeply is unlocked by the knowledge that you have been loved deeply. I'm going to say that again before we go to this next quote, and you're going to like it, I promise. No, you can't, I can't, we can't. Until or unless that capacity to love deeply, and we do have that capacity because we are made in God's image, you remember that. That capacity to love deeply is unlocked by our, final, our, our finally understanding that we have been loved deeply. Okay. This is why the love part is more important than anything else that we do. And, and there, here's more evidence of it. Jesus himself says, okay, now if you are being all religious, okay, and you are offering a gift at the altar as a, as a movement of your religiosity, but there remember that the love part is not first. Then stop doing the religious thing and go do the loving thing. Go, do the best you can to be reconciled to your neighbor because the God of love I don't know that the God of love will understand your religiosity, my religiosity, if it is not itself the essence of love. The God of love, if you access the God of love with the religious system of legalism, God will love you, he just won't recognize your faith. And so leave that gift there at the altar. The altar will be there when you get back, I promise. And go do the loving thing. Because that's who we are. More than we are the people who do the rituals. More than we are the people who can articulate right doctrine. We are the loving people because we are a first taste of the love of God that someday will sweep everywhere. And here's how to get from here to there. In the late 1600s, This woman, who's actually widowed, was prayer journaling, and she penned something that continues to reverberate to this day. Here's what she said. Speaking for God, she said, more pleasing to me, says God, than all your prayers, your works, and your penances is that you would believe I love you. Oh, just sit and drink for a little bit here. More pleasing to me, says God 
and all your prayers, your works, your penances, is that you would believe I love you. Man, the folks that finally get there, the folks who are finally able to get all the way there where you recognize that this God who knows you despite your efforts to hide your true self from God and everybody else and even yourself. This God who knows you and still chooses you and loves you, when you are finally bathed in that love, somehow that will dramatically affect your capacity to love in these same ways. Hard for the Corinthian church, hard for any church, hard for our church to be the kind of church that operates in these countercultural, actually quite revolutionary sorts of ways when you understand that the love that he's talking about is not just a romantic love, it's the love that God intends to unleash on the entire planet. Hard for us to work and love in those sorts of ways without recognizing how deeply loved we have been ourselves. Short of that, it's legalism. You know you're supposed to love people, right? You, you better do it or else you're going to be in bad trouble. That's not a great way to motivate love. No, the best way to motivate love is to remind people that they are, in fact, loved. That's how we become this community of love, this community of the now and the not yet. That's how we become this community that is a first taste of the future. And we rehearse it every week. Every week we rehearse it. Every week we do something meant to remind you and me and us of our being beloved, of the incredible sacrificial ways in which we have been loved, and we take of it, we eat and drink of it every week in the hopes that slowly but surely these elements take up ground in our minds and our hearts until finally we live as fully convinced people that we are fully and deeply loved, though God knows everything there is to know about us. And then somehow, loving my neighbor makes more sense. So if you were helping us, if you would go ahead and take your places. Heavenly Father, bless these elements. And help us to remember that by these elements, you are trying to strengthen us and help us and shape us so that we can, in fact, be the faithful, the faithful, loving people of God. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask you to exit your pew to the left and then come forward to approach someone holding a plate of bread. Now, you can't buy this. So just come with your hands ready to receive a gift. You can't buy it. You just have to be given this gift. As you approach the person with the bread, that person will break off a piece of the bread, push it into your hands and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Now you know why we do this every week because folks like me, folks like you need the weekly reminder of who God is and who we are as a reflection. Now, don't eat the bread just yet. 
but dip that bread then into the cup. The person standing right there will be holding a cup. When you dip it into the cup, that person will say, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And then take and eat. And then find a place to pray. Pray that God would somehow break through every layer of defense. That God would break through all of your defenses to remind you again and again and again until you're finally and completely convinced that God loves you like this. Now you can pray all kinds of prayers. In fact, we would invite you. If you need a prayer for healing, we have a padded altar over here and a padded altar over here. If you come to one of those padded altars, someone will meet you there to pray that prayer for healing. Perhaps it's a physical hardship or a mental or emotional, a theological or a relational pain that you suffer. Someone will meet you there to pray that prayer for healing. And then these kneelers here. These are for all kinds of prayers prayed by all kinds of people. All are welcome at these altars. All are welcome at these altars. And you'll find if you come to pray here that you aren't praying alone. Someone will come and touch you on the back of the head or the shoulder or the neck to be, again, a tangible reminder of the presence of God in your life. If you can't come to us, then Jason and Katie will come to you. You just need to raise your hand. Who is welcome at this table? Well, all of you who are aware of your need for grace, all of you, it doesn't matter where you are in this journey, all who are aware of their need for grace are welcome, welcome here at this table. And you'll notice that there is this bowl of water. And baptism, we do most of ours right over here. Baptism, that's where we say right out loud, yep, I am covenantally committed to this God. I am brought in, initiated into, adopted in some sense into this family that is going to, right here and now, operate with an eternal sense of God's love. But life is difficult and hard, and it may be that you need a reminder of your baptism and of your baptismal vows. This water here is for you, and it's just cold enough that you'll remember. You'll remember. And so I want to invite all of you, and more and more soon to be coming, I want to invite you to come and just touch this water and remember your vows and remember that you've been brought into this community that is to be the first taste of God's eternity. Now, all across the sanctuary, I want to invite you to stand. It was on the night that he was betrayed that our Savior took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. Every time you eat of it, remember me. Later on, he took the cup and he said, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant shed for you. Every time you drink of it, remember me. So come and eat and drink. Come take this as a gift, that which cannot be stolen or bought or charged. Come and receive all over the sanctuary now. Come and receive. If you see someone here praying, we 
you please, uh, someone for whom you could be a tangible expression of the love and the grace and the hospitality of God, would you please come and make your way here to pray with somebody. You don't have to know what's going on. exactly what's going on. You may not know what to pray. It does not matter. But please come and be an extension of grace for someone. session. These altars are open and you are always welcome. At any point during this prayer, Jason will close us with the Lord's Prayer. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we are called to be a community that operates according to the same love that we see demonstrated in Christ's cross. We just can't do it all the time. We can see it and we have seen glimpses of it and sometimes more than others, we are completely aware of this incredible love made available to us so indiscriminate, (laughs) so knowledgeable of who we are and it is mind-blowing on those moments that we are finally re-apprehended by it. It, it, it. It does have the power to change everything, at least until we forget. Father, we confess that when we forget, we're likely to be organized by something else and not love as the way, not love the way that you understand it or have embodied it. Perhaps we are organized by fear. Perhaps we are organized by lust. Perhaps we are organized by ambition. We're just organized by something other than this this love. And Father, we confess that when we are organized by something other than that, that we fall short of your greatest dreams for us as a church. So forgive us. Forgive us for all the times, and that time might even be today, when we fall short of the kind of love that can reshape a life, a home, a city, a country, a world. Maybe, God, it's in those moments that it would be most powerful to recognize that we are loved even then, even then. In our moments of failure, when we don't measure up, God, if you could help us to see that we are loved in those moments specifically, maybe that'll do it. Maybe that'll help us to walk 
better, to move more fluently, more fluidly as the people of God. Father, remind us of your love that makes no sense, but the love that will someday be the rule of the entire creation. May we participate in it today. As we move into these moments of intercessory prayer, we want to ask God to come alongside some of our folks who we know and love. Ask, pray along with me as we ask God. God, we ask you would be with Betty Faint. Taken to the emergency room this morning with significant blood pressure issues, and as the Faint family is gathered around her at this time, God, we ask that you would bring healing, your presence strength to this family. Lord, we ask you to heal Betty. Lord, we're grateful that Ken and Margaret Murray are here this morning and ask God that you would continue to come alongside Ken, strengthen him. Lord, we are grateful for the ways in which he has recovered so well from this stroke from just a few days ago. Lord, ask for a future full of hope and healing and full health. Lord, we're grateful that Ron Wheeler's with us today and ask God you'd come alongside Ron as he continues to heal up from a fall earlier this week. Lord, would you come alongside of him and continue to be a presence and hope and healing in his life. Lord, we ask you'd come alongside those who continue to have cancer and are moving towards the healing of cancer in their lives. Lord, we ask you'd be with Ken Hardy as he goes in for chemotherapy tomorrow morning. Lord, continue to heal Ken. Strengthen him. Give him rest, hope, your presence, and full health. Lord, we ask for your continued work in the life of Debbie McKenzie and your continued healing. We see this, this, this morning here in June Adams. God, come alongside these. Lord, we ask you would continue to be with the health of Lynn Caprero. And as I've said these names, or maybe someone in your heart whose name's popped in to your head, a face that you see, in these spaces, would you pray for that person who you know needs a specific touch of healing from God? In these moments, Lord, we want to pray for those who are incarcerated, like our friend Joe Lardy, who seems like after about seven years, it seems within the next couple of weeks, he may get to return home or be with him. May your presence go to him. Pray for the lonely. Pray for our homebound friends like Mary Ann Bell and Jerry, who's not with us this morning. Lord, we ask that you would come alongside our enemies. And in this space, God, who so stubbornly asks through his son Jesus that we would pray for our enemies. In these moments, would you pray for your enemy, your opposite? Jesus, may you continue to mold and shape us to be people of love, people who live into this prayer, the prayer you taught your disciples to pray. And 
This morning, church, we're going to pray that prayer using debts and debtors. And if you're unfamiliar with that prayer, it should be on the screen in front of you. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.